Hi, I'm Nick Little-Hales and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. Today, I'm going outside the tennis world. I've touched on this topic of sleep a bit before on the show, and I'm excited to speak to sleep expert Nick Littlehales. Nick is elite sports sleep coach who has been redefining sleep for over two decades. He was given his break by Sir Alex Ferguson and has gone on to work with some of the best athletes and teams in the world, such as Cristiano Ronaldo, Manchester United, Arsenal, Real Madrid, British Cycling, Team GB Olympics, and many more. We talk about how he gained interest in the area and he then dives into sleep and the advantages of it and the things you can do to get better sleep, which result in better recovery and better performance. During the time of the interview, I was reading this book aptly called Sleep. It's a short read, which I really enjoyed. I picked up a few tips from it and recommend you read it if you're interested in the area or want to know more about Nick. Okay, here we go. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Oh, it's great to have you on. I've mentioned sleep before. I have mentioned Matthew Walker a number of times. I was a big fan of his book. I've been wearing an aura ring a couple of years. So I'm sort of, I'm into it. I'm no expert. I'm an armchair expert. So it's great to have a proper expert who's been in the industry for what, 25 years, Nick? Um, I've been in it for over 35 years, but dedicated to elite sport for about 23, three years now. A lifetime in sleep. God, well, look, uh, sleep's good for you, so you're doing okay. But it's your it's your direct correlation to sleep and sport, which is really interesting. And I was recommended to get you on the show by a psychologist called Elena Souza, who we did a webinar with. So thanks to Elena for recommending. I did get your book. I'm going through your book, Sleep, which is great. I didn't expect this episode to happen so quick, so I haven't finished your book yet. But it's really interesting and Nick's going to tell us a bit about who he's worked with, how he got into it. But how did you get into sleep and how did you get your break with Sir Alex Ferguson? That's a big old question, I think. Um, I had no interest whatsoever about getting involved with the world of sleep and sleeping products whatsoever. You know, I was just uh, a, a young teenager trying to get into sports, doing all sorts of things, trying to become an elite athlete. Da, da, da. Um, that didn't quite work out for me back then. Uh, so I ended up marrying my childhood sweetheart. I ended up, you know, trying to pay bills, mortgages, bring up a young family. Uh, and their family business was involved with furniture and the furniture industry. So I joined her family business. So once that started, I started to get, you know, quite frustrated with all that sort of stuff. So I tried to look for jobs that paid good money and became a sales rep for a company called Slumland Beds. And I went off on that journey. So absolutely no interest, no interest whatsoever. It was just paying the bills, get a company car. I think the whole drive of being an elite athlete at that particular time, you know, not that I was an elite athlete, but the drive to be it is very independent, very driven. And so I found myself in this sort of like selling beds on the road as a rep. And I just thought there's a better way of doing this. So I think the whole business of my journey in sport and being a professional golfer for a particular time and coaching people and 
getting up early and all this sort of stuff, culminated it into like, wow, I'm selling beds now on the road. What's all that about? So maybe I just thought, well, there's a better way of doing this. So I kind of challenged all my bosses to say, you know, you've got all these rules and regulations about doing stuff, but I think there's a better way of doing it. So I started to do that. In a very short space of time, I became the international sales and marketing director of the company. That went through a number of things and then probably hit a midlife crisis in my early 40s, you know, sat there and just thought, you know, I've been in this sort of sleep industry, worked around clinicians and done sleep studies and looked at this and tried to change things and being innovative and in all sorts of ways and driving that sort of approach. I was chairman of the first UK sleep council in the UK because there wasn't one. All of those things came together, Fabio, and it, I just thought, we take it for granted. It's not a performance criteria. That's never going to change. So let's just go off and, you know, start a surfing school in Melbourne, Australia or something, and just go off in a different direction. And it's just at a point where I was in a, a particularly sort of limbo where I'd sort of given up my job as a director. I was working a 12-month contract as a director of a big company. I was employing people to take over my jobs and stuff like that. And the local football team in the UK, um, where my, in the northwest, where I was based in Oldham, Manchester, was Oldham Athletic Football Club. And they got in touch with me and said, you're a big employer, you've got loads of money, can you sponsor our shirt? So I thought, why not? Let's do that. Then suddenly I got involved with going to football matches and meeting with people and Strangely enough, in that particular area, there was a club called Manchester United. And, you know, I'm an Aston Villa fan. I was born in North Birmingham. You know, that's my team. That's where I was born at. So Manchester United had no relevance to me. The fact I sponsored the local club's team shirts, putting our company name on it, was all about the workforce. So there was no particular strategy or anything. It just, that's the way it happened. And... What happened was, within that thing, there was, a, there was a number, in that particular time, the late 90s, it's called the Class of 92, there was a number of players that were born out of Berry Football Club, Oldham Athletic, Paul Scholes. So Alex Ferguson had a, a really close relationship with local clubs in that area. So the fact that I just wrote a checkout and sponsored those shirts engaged me with Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, who wasn't Sir Alex Ferguson then. So I started having conversations about sleep inside of football because that's what I did. And that sort of joined itself up. We started to have some conversations, working with the physios at Manchester United, totally different era. And suddenly it was just a, oh, I could actually examine some of the things that I've learned in my career in sleep. The myths, the misunderstandings, the lack of education, you know, there's this, there's that, nothing works, nothing does this, there's no definitive approach. So I just got engaged on a little journey. And I think it was, if it was any other club, any other club at that particular time, nobody would even be talking to me. But I think it was a combination of Alex Ferguson. They then jumped into a treble winning side. Um, so there's a lot of focus in that area. A lot of those players work. Uh, played for the national squad. So that drove me into the national squad. That drove me into Arsenal Football Club because the physio of the national England squad was a guy called Gary Lewin who also worked for Arsenal. Then this new guy came along who was completely crazy called this French guy, <laughs> Arsene Wenger. And he just went, oh, I'm looking at all sorts of stuff. So maybe this stuff's great. And then suddenly I just woke up one morning 
and apparently the media just labelled me as a sports sleep coach. Nobody really knew what it was, neither me, and we just <laughs> tried to work on that process, and like two decades later, here we are now. Wow, and for those that don't, obviously if, if anybody knows soccer, they know who Alex Ferguson is. He ran such a great job at United, brought up so many great players. And for those that don't know him, I'm going to compare him to, I don't know, Phil Jackson, if you come from America, maybe that sort of status. Uh, really great coach, well-respected coach. But were United, and I know Arsenal for that, were they ahead of the curve in international football on this sleep system and with other sports as well? Do you reckon it's one of the first sports to really start to embrace the advantages of sleep and look into it? Well, in my journey, I have to say yes. Because that's that's where I started, and that's those conversations. Talking to the physios, and talking to Alex Ferguson, talking about the club, the class of '92, the whole sort of thing was going on then. There was a, a, a another manager at that time called Sam Allardyce, very much connected with Bolton at the time, and he also had very sort of open mindedness to stuff. And I think it was all that sort of time. There's uh, one of the physios, Dave Fever, was very open. Um, then his successor, Rob Swire, who had a long career with uh, Manchester United, was extremely open to these things. And we started to do stuff, you know. And there's all sorts of little things along that journey that you'd have to reflect back on. They were at the start. They were very much at the first step of changing our thought process to its performance, but there is also recovery. And those things are very much interlinked, and recovery is not a non-activity, it's not a waste of time. It's actually aligned with performance. So some of the little things that were going on in and around that time were game-changing, game-changing. Did you see a, a straightaway change in the players when you started implementing you talk about in your book where they had a separate room with 12 players to go in and they could sleep or close their eyes. What sort of early changes did you see in players' performances? It's difficult to be too definitive about that, to be honest, Fabio. But it, it was it was sort of like, so we're going to double up pre-season training. We're going to train them in the morning and train them in the afternoon. You know, so Rob and the guys and everybody else just, just so what are we going to do? Um so we kind of thought, well, let's try and create some rooms where they can go and sleep. Why would they want to sleep between training sessions? Well, so the whole napping thing and things like that all came into play. And we sort of start to see data collection, like some players perform better in the morning and not in the afternoon. And we'd never done that before because of double-up pre-season training. So you're only looking at data in the morning rather than the afternoon. When you started doubling it up, which is Alex's decision, suddenly you started to see different data. Then there was all sorts of things like, you know, postural care. What are they sleeping on in their homes? You know, we look after them so much in the club around the training ground, then they just drive off in their Ferraris, off to their fancy homes. What are they sleeping on? It was like a physical dehabilitation and rehabilitation process. And it was all these little factors that started to come in. And then other little things like, you know, a particular time when... They had a, an away kit, which was all grey. And suddenly they started to realise that players were starting to not be able to see other players because it was mixing in with other colours. So there's a weird moment in time when the colour of the kit 
started creating issues because they couldn't differentiate between players. Then they started looking at peripheral vision. Then they started looking at color blindness. So certain things started to happen. You just go, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. There's a lot going on in here that we've never really looked at before. So there's guys like Sam Allardyce, who's just got a new job this week. There's guys like Sam Allardyce, people like Alex and stuff like that, and Arsene Wenger. They were looking at stuff and going on a journey, and I just happened to be involved with that process. And it all added up to, we don't know enough. So you, you were brought in to to give them more advice, to learn more. Tell me, were you, Nick, part of the Sky Cycling team? Who did I hear when they won? Who was it that won that won the Tour de France? And was it during the Olympics? Was it the GB Olympic team as well, where they brought their own beds? Oh, you should know this because it's Sir Bradley Wigan. Oh, Sir Bradley, I'm thinking of Chris Froome. I don't know why I'm thinking of Froome, but maybe he went through the same process. Chris Froome has just been the serial Tour de France winner since then. But the whole objective of British cycling team Sky, which I was brought in to help in the aggregation of marginal gains in the sleep area, that was the big one. Yeah. Because our challenge was to put the first British rider on the Tour de France program in the yellow jersey. And Bradley Wiggins did that in 2012. And was it was it true that they were bringing, they had their own mattress which would be loaded up in the hotel room every night So and the same pillows that they got a consistent night's sleep every night? Because it's that combination of that journey, Fabio, you know, starting with Manchester United, we looked at that, we looked at that, then we moved on to Arsenal, we did this, National Squad, Euro 2004, where we started to create products for the individual players in Euro 2004. And then it all culminated together that we put all the things together and we started out a journey with British Cycling, which also included that every single rider has their own bed in a bag for a Tour de France for three weeks. We went on Giro d'Italia's, Vuelta's. We tested all these things out. So it was a whole combination of this aggregation of marginal gains that actually there was such a focus on recovery that in 2012 it culminated in probably the most successful era ever, from Tour de France wins to time trial wins to British cycling smashing world records left, right and centre, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And strange enough, yes, they were taking their own beds with them. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, this is something separately related, but it's actually, I think, related to current times. Like, I heard also that, like, they were they got surgeons in to teach them how to wash their hands properly. So there's less chance of picking up any you know, any viruses or any, you know, t- to reduce the chance of getting a cold, which is in times with, t- with Corona in 2020, which is kind of funny. But... Tell us, Nick, so what are, we've listeners here who don't know anything about sleep. They don't know anything about the advantages of getting good sleep. What are the main advantages of having good, consistent sleep every night and doing the best you can to ensure you get a good night's sleep? I think, you you know, you touched on things like Matthew Walker's book. I think that was an amazing book that sort of definitively put the importance of sleep inside some context with everything else that's been written. You know, my book has its relevance, but in a different way. I think it's just with such a lack of education, this is an enormous health pillar. You know, motivation, everything you want to do in every day is completely driven 
by your ability to recover. And why do you need to recover? You have, um, you know, I can call you Fabio, you can call me Nick. The fact is we're just a brain with bodily functions. We're completely synchronized to one very natural process called the circadian rhythm. And for everybody else, that's just the sun rolling around our planet. The sun rolls around our planet. It doesn't give a damn about our behavior. It simply just creates a light, dark, and temperature shift, which triggers two specific hormones called melatonin and serotonin that balances our approach. When you get that into your head and you look at everything that's going on, is that when you go into a sleep state, you're out of control, right? Your brain takes over. So if you want to choose a new diet, you want to choose an exercise routine, it's all a mental and physical activity. The thing that worries most people is that sleep is something that they do and they're out of control of and the brain takes over. So as soon as you get that relationship that your brain's in control of, you're not in control of. The power of the recovery, organs, joints, muscles, things, everything in your whole space is driven by giving your opportunity to you as a human being to recover properly. Once you get that into your head, then what you do is you focus on everything you do from the point of wake. This is not about what you do while you're asleep. While you're asleep, the brain just takes everything that you've been doing. It's an amazing organ, so adaptable. It does all sorts of stuff. It allows us to work shift work, massive challenges, live in all sorts of places on this planet. The brain is amazing. Once you have that relationship with your brain, you get this really nice place to go. If I just do this and this, my brain will do that. If my brain does that, that means I can do this. And it's maybe a sort of simplistic way to put it. That is the key to human success. It's just understanding it's not you. It's your brain that's in control of it. So if, like, I don't know if I understand that as luck, you get up, Fabio, the same time every morning. You try and let sunlight hit your face every morning at, a cer- at the same time. So you kick off this circadian rhythm and melatonin can start build up. Is, is that a way of looking at that side of things? Yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, as coaches, you always try to put it in context of where people are right now and where they are. And it's kind of like, you know, if I'm talking to somebody, I just go, what's the most fundamental thing that you would do before you left the house or went off on your journey for the day? And they'd probably go, I've got my phone and a charger, right? And you say, well, what is that about? Well, I've got the device, but if I can't charge it up, it's going to run out. And when it runs out, I can't ignore the food. I can't even talk to friends. I can't burn My life just comes to a grinding halt. So what's the first thing you want to do every morning? Just make sure I've got a full charge and I've got a charger, whatever that looks like. Okay, so the first thing you need to do is have a consistent wait time and get loads of light because that's the same thing. Because if you haven't recharged that brain, everything else in your world is not going to work. How you evaluate information, how you judge things, your anxiety, your stress, everything else, you need to be fully charged because if you're not... You're going to create more problems for yourself. So it's kind of like, you know, if that made any sense whatsoever, Fabio. It did. You know, when you lose something, you lose a hell of a lot of these things. If you focus on the key thing, it doesn't matter whether, you know, being on your tech too much is 
you know, wrong and social media and all that sort of stuff and algorithms going all over the place, driving you in different directions. The fact is, the most important thing is that you bring your brain into this world every morning in the right way. Then everything else will make sense. And tell me, what if, let's say, we're in wintertime now, doesn't, sun doesn't rise till half seven, eight o'clock, I'm up at five, half five. People get up early every morning for whatever reason. They go to bed early. Every morning you're up at five, six. There's no sunlight. What can people do to get their circadian rhythm going? I think the um, there's two sort of things that we're working on at the moment is hopefully by redefining our approach to sleep, we can get the next generation to get rid of daylight saving time, which shifts our clocks around in the seasons, which is unnatural. But I think we also have to get back to, as human beings, we've been wandering away from this natural circadian rhythm, gradually with electric lights and technology and behavior and all sorts of stuff. And if you just take a moment out and just reflect on that a little bit, then the one thing that we know creates a really lovely balance to your everyday is your exposure to light, diminished light and dark. And if it's not there, because you live in a country where there's daylight saving time. If it's not there, you need to recreate it. So you don't ignore it and go into the seasonal affective disorder months like we are now. You don't just wander in there blind and just get the effects of it. But that's just like, this is the norm. I want 12 hours of daylight, that blue energy light. I want four hours of diminished light, which is about moving into melatonin land. And I want about, you know, eight hours of dark. That's me as a human being part of that circadian process. So once you sort of get that, the way we sort of change elite athletes to becoming gold medal winners or high achievers or parents or students or frontline workers or podcasters or tennis players, whatever it is, is you just go, the reason why I work, the reason why I operate, so everything I eat, everything I drink, everything I do physically, all the visualization, everything else pointed out massively in, in Matthew's book. The reason why that all works is my relationship with life. And if I get a relationship with life, best energy source whatsoever, I'm in a place that I can now sort of forget about sleeping. Am I going to sleep well on Friday or Sunday or Saturday or Tuesday or Wednesday? I get a really lovely relationship. It's such a natural process. But your key is your exposure to light. Okay. But if you don't get this exposure to light at 5 a.m., you live in one of these countries in the Northern Hemisphere, like like the UK or Ireland where I am, what solutions are there so you can kickstart the, the, the rhythm? Well, it's a great question because, you know, how does the human being in the Northern Hemisphere, many, many months of daylight and very little dark and all this, you just put it in context that we have this ability to adapt. But it doesn't mean that that equals success. So whenever you look at human beings who live in areas where there are restrictions on light and exposures to different light things like Northern Hemisphere and stuff like that, when you start to restrict those, you always see the consequences. So it's not surprising when you look at certain areas of the planet where human beings don't live as long as us. There are more suicide rates. There are more, the lifespan is reduced or they adapt in certain different ways. So when you actually look at it, the point is 
Wherever you put yourself on this planet, your brain will always adapt. But there's consequence. So wherever you're living on this planet right now, your whole dynamic must be with your relationship with life. If it's off the scale, there's going to be consequence. There's going to be consequence. So you always try to bring it back to that place that wherever you are, try to maximize your light exposure the best way you possibly can. We've got products coming out of Northern Hemisphere companies like in Finland and Iceland where they're actually trying to reconnect themselves with that light exposure within the circadian rhythms that they live in because they do realize that having six months of daylight and six months of dark has a consequence. It's not the human being making this work. It means they live on part of the planet that creates this because that's what it is. It's the planet with the sun going around it. So if you choose to live in a certain part of the world, that's what's going to happen. So your brain will adjust. Of course it will. Six months of daylight. That's fine. We'll just crack on, be like this, da, da, da. If you live in Europe, then we're going to change the clocks. You're going to do that. That's fine. That's fine. But there are consequences. And I think that's what the subject of sleep has become so fascinating to people in this you know, modern generation is, hang on a minute, there's a massive health pillar here. And when you actually look at it and start investigating it, we can, we can really, really find how we do this because we're all doing it in such a random, almost chaotic way. But actually, maybe we can find a way to do it quicker, faster, smarter. Maybe we can use that knowledge and that technology to bring things into a new dimension for the next generation, suggesting you need to sleep less. But how do you sleep? You know, if you're, you know, you live in uh, Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, wherever it is, West Coast, USA, move yourself to Iceland. And Iceland's a great place. Funky, great club scene, all sorts of stuff going on. Massive, like, great, natural, global warming, great country whatsoever. But you are going to be exposed to like six months of no light and six months of every light. So how does that work? It's just the brain. The brain just keeps adapting. But there are consequences. And I think, you know, as you've looked into all of those things, you know, Matthew Walker's book and stuff, there are consequences. Yes, I have like, I do have heard the other consequence where when there is the, the daylight save and you lose an hour, if you look at, I'm not sure how true these either mentioned the book where globally there's increased trips to the doctors, uh, people getting colds and various things all related to the sleep and more. And also then we get the part-time workers, the late shift, sorry, the late shift workers, increased illnesses, all related to what you're saying about light. It all makes sense. I'm just trying to figure out what can somebody do who gets up? I'm training in the Northern Hemisphere for my off season, be it six weeks, eight weeks. I'm getting up every morning, crack of dawn or before. And it's how can I get the circadian rhythm going so I can make the most out of my energy levels? The point is, is light, Fabio. Whenever you look at it, you know, time zone traveling, resetting, jet lag, fatigue. You know, you, you were born in this particular part of the world. And now you're working in this particular, I think your whole drive in all of that is just exposing your light receptors and your pineal gland to the right sort of light at the right time of day. 
so what is the right light for early in the morning? Is it like looking at a blue screen on your laptop? Is that the right sort of light? The one that you should be staying away at late at night? You want, um, you know, when you look back at anything, you know, I used to go to libraries, you can just tap it on your browser. Um, what we do realize that in the first two phases of the day, which is sunrise, midday, sunset, that never changes wherever you are. And in those two phases of your day, you're exposed to probably anything up to a hundred thousand lux, right? Now, lux is the way you measure light lumens. That's daylight. And inside of daylight, there's this blue energy wave. And that blue energy wave dives into your light receptors behind your eyes, into a pineal gland, and creates serotonin, which unsuppresses everything about you. When that light's not there, you create melatonin, which suppresses everything tells the brain to suppress them. But when you move the human being around the, the world, it's not making you sleep. It's not making you mind. It's just telling the brain, this is what we should be doing. But you have the ability to override that and ignore it and forget about it. So the bit is getting back to that particular place. Wherever you are, you need an average of 10,000 lux because if you are outside as a human being, Inside that 100,000 lux, the daylight, you're not getting a full blast of that because you're moving around, looking up, looking down, moving around, hunting and gathering and all that sort of stuff. Your average probably about 10,000 lux. So in phase one and phase two, you need an average of 10,000 lux. Wherever you live on this planet, that's your average exposure. And these two hormones are amazing because they, the melatonin helps create, you know, this this nice perspective about anxiety and stress and depression and worrying and over-worrying and they can't do this and that. And serotonin is all about oh, being active and unsuppressing bodily function. Eat some good food, process it, put it in the right place, bang, let's go again. And I think that's why, you know, loved your question. Sorry if I haven't answered it that well. But <laughs> wherever you are on this planet, your relationship with life is your key to success. Okay, so moving on to the next stage, you've got a good start to the morning. You're getting your lumens. Let's get on to, you're big into the siesta, a little daytime nap. How do people, let's say, for example, I would struggle to sleep during the day and maybe I struggle to get the time as well. But what? How? what's the importance from you for somebody to get, a little nap during the day? Uh, I don't know where you got that from, but I, I, napping is for losers. Is it? Do you not talk, you talk about in your book about getting, like if you're catching up on your, either if you can get your 90 minute cycle or your 30 minutes during the day. I thought you, t you touch on it quite heavily on, in the book. Yeah, because we're talking about controlled recovery period. Okay. We're not talking about napping. Napping in that undefined approach. Sleep, perception of sleep. Get your eight hours, see you in the morning, crack on. Change it, redefine it. Think about 90 minute cycles, chop your day up into 90 minute cycles. Create a rhythm and harmony with a 24 hour process. Don't think about Monday to Sunday. Think about, I'm not worried about where I'm gonna sleep on Friday. I'm just doing the right thing to maximize my recovery. So I don't even worry about it. And it's the same with nap. Napping is one of those things that snoozes for losers it's because you've, you've got an undefined approach so maybe you fall asleep in front of the telly or when you're gaming or 
when you've got nothing better to do or behind the wheel of a car, you know, on a motorway, you know, tiredness can kill. What's all that about? That's because you're not in control. So napping is a bad thing. Right? What you do is change that into controlled recovery period. So what I do know is, is within the circadian rhythms of any day, human beings, mammals, animals, plants, everything on this planet, there is a little slump called midday. You've been driven by the serotonin, start the day, sun rises, fear being active, go and get it, go and hunt and gather, do your stuff, bang, 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 stop. Hydrate, fuel up, take a little break, a siesta. The graveyard slot in business. So what it is, is taking advantage of your natural slumps, the natural slumps in the 24-hour cycle, where you can just try and override it if you want. You can camouflage it if you want, or you can take full advantage of it. And that's where success comes from. So it's not about napping during the day. You know, you go, oh, I've got no time for this. I've got no time for that. And I just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You spend, you waste so much time every day in a, a sort of melatonin-driven world that when you actually sit down and, you know, sit with Fabio and go, okay, how long did that podcast actually last with me? Because listening back to it, I think we could have done it in 30 minutes, front to back, lots of clarity, good questions, good answers, bang, 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 bang. How long did it take? Three hours. Surely we can find time for a little controlled recovery breaks, little tiny little moments just to help the brain, whether it's a siesta, whether it's 30 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. And I think that's been the real, you know, success factor with people like Team Sky and British Cycling and, and very much other people is just don't think about your recovery as doing nothing as a consequence of a poor approach. Is actually just shove it in, bang it. You can do it anywhere you want. And once you've got that little thing in place, then you start to find success. I, I, I used the wrong word, I take it, napping. It's not a word I should have used, but I was getting to the same thing. I was getting to the same thing. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the world they just launched their most innovative tennis range ever which includes the new court ff3 novak the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of novak Djokovic. get your pair now at asics.com but so that's important and do you encourage all the people you work with to to do that yeah and, and as coaches sometimes you know if you want somebody to go to a particular place the last thing you want to do is tell them where to go. You take them on a little journey. It's left and right and backwards and forward. So suddenly they just realize that, was I actually doing a controlled recovery period then? And I go, yes, you were. How did that happen? Well, I just said, we should go and stand by the window to have that conversation. Or we should sit outside. Or we should take the dog for a walk. We should go and sit over here or sit over there. 
Oh, wow. Didn't realize that. Yeah, because what we were doing is you wanted to have a major conversation with me about tactics and stuff like that and everything else. I was well, let's do closer to the window. And then we were talking about the tactics and you're going, well, I don't know whether that works that well. Yeah, well, maybe we'll do that. And all the time we've been completely energized by this wonderful stuff, this light and this stuff. So it all brings it down to not about doing nothing. Your ability to stop and consider, point your brain in a different direction, a different visualization, rolling 24-7, means that you will become more productive, more energized, make better decisions, choose when you're going to do something and why, and also understand when you see something that's good, grab it. And in the sort of meditation world and the breathing world and the mindfulness and the resilience, that's what recovery is all about. So the, the point in that journey about napping is just like, when certain things come in front of you, you just go, I'm just going to take a deep breath. Taking a deep breath is a nap. And I can take a deep breath from the moment I wake in the morning Throughout my whole rolling 24 seconds, I just go, thank you. Just before I answer your question, I'm just going to take a deep breath. That's a CRP. That's a nap. It's not about falling asleep in front of the TV. It's not about trying to catch up on stuff. It's just going, hmm, the ability to listen, the ability to take your moments when you need them, to be able to understand that you're being asked to do something that may not be aligned to you as a human being, but you're still going to do it. But are there little things that you can just put in place that just protect you, understanding that process? And I think that's why the whole redefining thing, Fabio, to jump off my rants is the reason why it needed to be redefined is it's got nothing to do with everybody's perception about sleep. It's got nothing to do with napping and this and should I get my eight hours and the myth of that and blah, blah, blah. It's just, this is where I am on this planet. These are the things I choose to do or the challenges that I need to face. But how do I just get myself from A to B? And do I have something in my back pocket? It's called your brain and bodily functions. The scheme of the day light dark and temperature shifts. If I just have a better relationship with that, you can throw anything at me you want, but it will not have the kind of effect on me that it used to be. Then you've got a technique in your back pocket that's a game changer. Yeah, it seems to be it's a lot about obviously understanding and recognizing situations. Yeah, so everybody's been adjusting, haven't they, Fabio? Everybody's been adjusting with continued but what about COVID-20? Never mind COVID-19. What about COVID-20? Hasn't even appeared yet, has it? So it's like we're all completely focused on the challenges of the day and this and Christmas and that and da 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 da. We're all focused on that. But there's COVID-20 out there just around the corner. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning suddenly it's like, oh, my God, there's a new challenge. I think in elite sports and all that sort of stuff, we're always trying to find a way that we can have a defined approach 
that fundamentally is linked to natural human beings on this planet. But whatever you want to throw at us, we have a solution. We'll be ready. We'll be ready. And so, okay, so we're all having a, a great day. We're up early. We get some controlled recovery in during the day. Uh, evening time, what are things people can do to get them in the, in the mood to be able to sleep easily? So when you chop your day up into four phases of the day and you chop your day up into 90-minute cycles, what you end up with is phase three. So you've got phase one, sunrise, serotonin, get active, lots of light, midday, take a break, fuel up, bang, second phase of the day into sunset. Cool. Now you're moving into phase three. Now phase three has been complicated because we invented electric light, daylight saving time, and all these things. So phase three becomes a, a crazy period. You know, putting everybody in the same pot, phase three is almost like you ended your work day. Now you've got to eat well, you've got to go to the gym, be your family, be your friends, you've got to do this, social media, you've got to go gaming, you've got to do, well, wow. That phase three has a lot of pressure. So you wander back. What do you do at the start of phase one? Lots of light. What do you do midday, phase three, into phase two? Now, what's the best thing you want to do is take the pressure off phase three. And phase three is all about that evening into this sleep time. So suddenly when you start to think about cycles, when you start to think about 24-7, you start to think about stuff which we can't go into in this conversation. So I know where my best sleep is. I know in that 24-7 period where I can help my brain to reveal the best recovery. So in a lot of elite athletes' world, they always ask me, can we just do this quicker and smarter, maybe? Why do we have to allocate all this time to it? I go, well, maybe we'll find some sort of, you know, technological thing or a tablet or a supplement, and we can just all do it in 20 minutes. But then, actually, we're actually doing it. So if I sleep between 10 p.m., and 12 midnight, where the most deep sleep stages are going to be revealed, or between 12 and 2 a.m., then I'm getting the best out of my sleep. So suddenly I can start to shift it all around, move it around, make it work for me. So I stop thinking about eight hours. I start thinking about recovery moments and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, your question is good, difficult to answer. But once you've redefined it, Fabian, and you start to take the emphasis about how you currently do it or how you could do it tomorrow in a very practical and achievable way, like just like that, you don't have to think about changing your lifestyle and changing your behavior. You don't have to think about it. You just go, oh, that's how it works. Yeah. So I just need a consistent wait time, plenty of recovery breaks, Think about the four phases of the day. Third phase of the day is all about diminished light. But what's diminished light, Nick? Well, I'll show you. Because Fabio is actually sat in diminished light right now <laughs> as we're doing this podcast. He's not in serotonin land. He's in melatonin land. So he thinks he's a great podcaster and he's doing all this sort of stuff. In there. But actually, in our world as coaches, looking at you, I can already see there's a quicker, faster, smarter, 
more productive Fabio just sitting on the other side of that room right now. I don't, I, you lost me a little bit there. It's just when you look at that phase three, when you go into your evening, it's not about being non-active, non-productive, because we change the clocks and we shift the season. In the evening, it's about making sure that what you've been doing in phase one and phase two allows you to be in an unrushed way, be the most productive person you can, take the emphasis off you're in control of your sleep. You're not Fabio. Your brain is. So that whole phase three relationship builds from phase one, phase two, into phase three. So all this sort of pre-sleep stuff and everything you look at in that particular way, when you're always looking at somebody and you're sort of, this is your personal best, I can already see that, you know, in the marginal gains of British cycling teams going to the France, as you mentioned, all that, phase three, phase four, there is a person that you haven't met yet, just over there. And that's, you know, when you've been delving into Matthew Walker's book and everything you've been understanding, when you bring those things together and you suddenly realize that there's a, a more productive person just the other side of where you're sitting right now, that's what we look for. Deep, very deep, very deep. Let's just quickly talk about a bit of technology. I know I've mentioned the Aura Ring to you and we did have a brief chat yesterday and yeah, you mentioned technology can be hit or miss. It is hit or miss. It's not, I don't think it is where it should be at the moment. I think my personal opinion on the, let's say the Aura Ring that I wear is it gives you a baseline or makes you aware of it, which is important. What, as you being the expert here and being in this, you say, 30 years now, how do you see technology that's available today? How good is it and should people be using it? There's a big old conversation about this, but I think people should be using it as a, it is a nice gauge, it is a nice journey, but it is that first step. So, you know, if you think you're going to solve your recovery issues, your ability to be more productive and high performance and high tip, wherever it is, whoever you are, the data that's created by sleep trackers is not your answer. It's the start of a journey. And everybody in the world of sleep knows this. We all know this. It's just a start. There's a little bit of guessing going on. We've had products in the past that have just been amazing. So you can't jump from, you know, not even talking about it as a, sleep for granted, not a performance criteria, and then suddenly trying to use tracking data to put that thing right. So I think use it with caution. Use it as a benchmark, of course, but you've got to combine that with, you know, you do need to get professional advice. And there's not, there's not that many sleep coaches around. There's not, but it's just like maybe into a, a sort of you, you make the decision that you want to bring exercise into your world. You know, maybe walking for 30 minutes or taking the dog for a walk or going to a gym and doing this and doing that. And you'll suddenly get involved with things like heart rate variability and data collection and wristbands and all sorts of stuff. But it's all based on like many, many years of research and data and performance factors and everything else. So you have a relationship with it, even if you're just a newcomer to it. This bit, you're just starting from scratch. Starting from scratch. There's so many variables, there's so many things. So the thing that always the thing you want to, is it's a very natural process. 
if you want to start measuring it, you have to sort of put it in context that even the even the places where they look at sleep every day of the week don't know. All right? They don't know. It's just how do people work night shifts? How do people come multi-shifts? How do people come, you know, 24-7 poker players, esport players? How do people live in the north and southern hemisphere? Which you We don't know. It's a, give a tracker to an Eskimo. Give an aura ring to an Ethiopian farmer. Do you know what I mean? It's going to have absolutely no effect. I mean, lots of our life. Give an aura ring to a, somebody who's just had their newborn. They, you know, they found out they're going to be a parent nine months ago, and now they've got a newborn who's a month old. Put the aura ring on and go, tell me what to do. Don't do that. I, I've been down that route as in... Uh, have you? Well, no, I was joking. I funnily enough got my wife a, a Fitbit last Christmas and or before, just as our baby was born, just before. And yeah, all of a sudden, something that was never looked at before was looked at. And it was a bit, it was tough at times when they see how many hours, even just if you just gauge how many hours were slept during the night, it was tough. But looking point, Fabi, it's not, of course, we're not against measuring and days. That's what makes our world work. But you have to put it in context. You have to put it in context. So what are you going to do with the information when you've got a young child waking you up every three hours to feed poo and blah, blah, blah? How are you, are you going to go, I'm not sleeping well. Hello, you're a surgeon in a hospital. You're a, you know, you're a long haul pilot. You're a, you know, you're a nurse on the front line. You know, you're a, a DJ, you're a breakfast presenter, you're a politician, you know. So what mm-hmm. is it? They just ignore it. Any yeah. journey, you have to make some changes, but you do have to put it in context. So you need to know that while you're going on a journey of data collecting and these products are great, but you do have to understand that you've got to put it in context because otherwise there's already a term for the anxiety and stress that's created by sleep data yeah. collection, which is called more worry, more anxiety from hello. So it's kind of, a, we're just, we're not, I'm not negative about it. It's just this balance, you know, how do I advise an elite athlete you suddenly found a partner, now they've got a newborn in it, they're about to go to an Olympics, oh. and the newborn is mucking about all night long, they have no control over it. Well, Nick, my sleep data's saying I'm not getting this. I'm like, well, it's a newborn kid. How do we deal with that? Move out. Get them in the right process in the first place. Yeah, no, Nick, that, that's really, context is such a big key there. But I'm going to end this on one question, just curious, not related to sport directly, but it could be related to an Asian athlete. But why, as we get older, is it harder for us to sleep? Or is our, our ability to sleep declines as we get older? Uh, it's a good old question. I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer it. But my, from my experience and my knowledge, in your formative growth years, the brain is in control. No parents can override. You move into adolescence and puberty and things start moving in a different direction. You make choices about careers and stuff like that. You have fear factors. You're vibrant. You can do anything you want and all that sort of stuff and you just crack on. And then 
as those sort of decades shift, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s into 60s, you are deteriorating. So your ability to override stuff becomes less. So I don't think you need more sleep when you get old. I don't think, you, you know, you don't suffer from insomnia and stuff like this because you're old. It's just you didn't have a definitive approach in the start. You haven't got one in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s or your 60s or your 70s. So why should you believe that you've got one now? So, you know, when you're working with people in their older age group, they don't need less sleep, but they sleep more polyphasically. They, they tend to take a little moment in time in the afternoon or they, they wake up at their natural chronotype time, you know, because things have changed. They've gone into, they've left their occupation. So they tend to sort of wake up when they want to. They tend to, oh, can't be asked with that. You know, so attitude, deterioration, stuff like that. And it's a bit like me, you know, passing my seat. I just get that, oh, don't call me at 5.30 because I'm having 30 minutes. So I think the whole basis is not about you need less sleep. I think it's just certain things start to change that kind of indicate to the new generation that if only I'd done this when I was young, I'd probably live longer and be less affected by old age. So I don't need less sleep. I just do less. But, you know, so I think it's just a really great, and we've done it with a project recently, and it's just like, it's just, are the older age group doing exactly what they did when they were younger? They were just listening to their brain, listening to their stuff, having more attitude, and have more ability to control it. So that's what happens. The younger generation just go, ah, now I'm going to do this, do that, do that, do that. And the older age group, yeah, well, I've got meetings between, but then I'm not doing it. And then I get, no, no, no. I think they just spend more time on recovering. I don't think it's because you're older. I think you're just listening to your body. You're listening to your journey on this planet. And I think if the younger generation listen to that in the first place, wow, who knows what they could achieve. When you think about grandchildren, like the next generation, and they go out with grandparents, and they have these little memories. So I always used to like to go to granddad because he took me outside and we went fishing and picking berries off the trees. Because that's what granddads do, don't they? They take the next generation into a different world. And so you, if you put that in context, what are you trying to tell that next generation? Is those things are amazing. The little journeys you go on, go fishing with Grandad. Is it because you're going fishing with Grandad because he's not techo and he's not in that world? And he, he knows nothing about phones and iOS. And, well, no, it's just a nice... I like going fishing with Grandad. You know what I mean? Or Grandma, right? I just like baking cakes with Grandma and stuff like that. Was they taking you out of that space and putting you in a different space? Were they reminding you of how you get here? And I think... That whole little thing, however you want to put it, is those little controlled recovery pills, whether it's nipping off from your iPhone and your gaming and your stuff like that and going fishing with granddad for no apparent reason. Those are the things that sort of, when you bring it all back, equals success. They're little 
tiny recovery moment. And sometimes you have to look at that old rage group to make you go there because they didn't have that in the first place. And it sort of, you know, in any sort of elite athlete's world that I've made a significant differences, it's always been those little moments. <laughs> Nick, that's, yeah, that's insightful. Never thought about it that way. And look, you, you are the expert here, but uh, thank you very much for that one of our deeper episodes here but it's something that I've been wanting to touch on for a long time so yeah thank you very much it's a pleasure having you on and yeah it's really good and I'm excited by this stuff you still there hope you haven't fallen asleep uh just kidding I hope you picked up something from that episode a big thanks to Nick for his time and as I mentioned before if you're interested in finding out more about sleep or Nick check out his book on Amazon called Sleep. Okay, until the next episode, goodbye.